Most of you are probably familiar with the example or image of the Buddha uh, when he was in the forest picking up a handful of leaves and asking the monks, Oh monks, which is greater, the number of leaves in my hand or all the leaves on the trees in the forest? All the leaves on the trees of the forest, oh Lord. Easy question. And the Buddha then went on to say, what I know, everything I know, is comparable to all the leaves on the trees of the forest. And what I've taught is like this handful of leaves. And yet this is all that's needed to know for liberation, for awakening. So the implication here is that everything that we learn in the teachings, you know, from reading, reading, from studying, from the Dharma talks, is not about philosophic systems, it's not about metaphysical systems. All of the teachings are pointing to what is needed, what is necessary to liberate our minds. It was a very pragmatic pragmatic way of understanding what the Buddha was teaching. It's about the transformation of our lives. Now, a well-known stanza that is said to have occurred to the Buddha after, just after his enlightenment. And so just imagine the scene, you know, he just spent six, six years in doing the austerity practices, extreme austerities, finding they don't work, comes to sit under the Bodhi tree. The night of the full moon of May achieves full and perfect enlightenment. And the first words that he reported as having come to his mind, the famous stanza, O house builder, you have now been seen. You will build no house again. This house of I, this house of self. And the stanza concludes with the lines, Attained is the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. Achieved is the end of craving. This is a very clear and unambiguous statement of the goal. Achieved is the end of craving. This is the goal of practice. But when we hear this, we might feel a little daunted, you know, or feel unready for such a radical departure from our normal way of living, from our normal lives. Now, we might resonate very well with uh, St. Augustine's special prayer, oh, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. You know, and we might very much have that same attitude. May I be free of the end of, may I be free of craving, may I achieve the end of craving, but not quite yet. But there's really a great power and beauty in exploring the meaning of this declaration. Because we can begin to see in our own practice and in our own lives how craving 
this force of craving in the mind obscures the natural awareness and openness of mind. And now even in just moments when we're free of craving, we can recognize the taste, you know, the possibility of freedom. So tonight is an exploration, tonight's talk is an exploration of craving, how to understand it, how to work with it, how to experience the possibility of coming to the end of it. And I'll be using the words craving and desire interchangeably. But sometimes this causes some confusion because in English the word desire can have several different meanings. You know, we can use the term desire, desire for food or clothing or shelter, which is really just that satisfying of basic human needs. We could use the word desire to mean motivation to do something. And this is the translation of the Pali word chanda. And chanda is ethically neutral. We can be motivated to do skillful things, unskillful things. Or we can use the word desire to do something. But the way I'm using it synonymously with craving, it's desire as greed. It's that, it's that factor in the mind, lobha in Pali, which is that sticking quality. You might think of, you might think of greed or desire in this sense as Velcro mind. You know, where it just sticks to the object. So it's this use of desire that refers to craving, to thirst, to longing. When we don't see or understand this force in the mind, we simply act out the very deep patterns of conditioning, patterns of attachment, patterns of clinging, with all their attendant suffering. So the Buddha helped us out in terms of investigating craving or desire because he pointed out the three main types of craving, three types of craving to look for, to be aware of. This is, this is part of that handful of leaves which helps us to see clearly and to let go. So the first and most obvious kind of craving, and one we're probably the most familiar with, is that desire or craving for sense pleasures, for pleasant sense experience. And we can see this play out in a very wide spectrum of intensities and frequencies. Now, it might play itself out as obsess obsessive patterns, obsessions, that might at certain times consume our lives. Now, it's the idea that someone or something will finally make us happy. And so much of great literature is about this kind of craving. I was just you know, thing of all the great works of 
Anna Karenina and remembrance of things past and many, many more. It just deals with the mind that has become obsessed with craving and all the suffering that follows. Or we might see it on a much more mundane and less literary way, but you know, when we read the accounts almost daily in newspapers of people doing the most crazy things driven by obsessive passion, obsessive craving. This is not an insignificant force. Or it might not be an obsessive craving, an obsession, another level of it that can be just as deep is the pattern of addictive cravings. You know, it might be addiction in one way or another to food, to alcohol, to drugs, to sex, to success, to power, to wealth. All the many things we become addicted to in our lives. You know, in many ways our society reinforces this as being something good. And this is what's so strange. All those internet ads now. Increase your desire. (laughs) Just what we need. (laughs) You know, our society is just feeding us this. And there, there was one advertisement years ago. Uh, I think it was some cigarette advertisement. Uh, and the caption was, nothing stands in the way of my pleasure. You know, as if this is the highest good. And so we're really going upstream here. It might be obsession. It might be more run-of-the-mill addictive cravings. It can also be this craving or desire for sense pleasures might also simply be passing thoughts of wanting or desire that come through our mind, that take us out of the natural ease, the natural openness. I had one very mundane example of this. I was out in California visiting and I was at a, this was in Palo Alto, and I was at the Stanford Shopping Center, which is, you know, one of these very nice upscale shopping centers. And, and I was just watching my mind. I was kind of walking through the parking lot into the, the shopping area. And I would be just in my body, you know, stepping, 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 and really just present. And then my mind would get caught with something to want. And then for the next 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 steps, I would be totally lost. I would not be aware of my body, not be back in myself, but totally lost in that mind-created desire. And then something would startle me awake. And yeah, that was just a thought. That was just wanting. And again, back in the body. And I went back and forth like this, and I saw how hard it was first in that environment to really stay 
free of wanting, free of craving, and how we need to practice it in whatever environment we are. But often these patterns of wanting, patterns of desire, patterns of craving, especially these more ordinary ones, are so familiar to us. They're so much a part of who we take ourselves to be, and this, this is just how I am, this is, this is life, that they remain invisible until we bring a very strong power of intention, of mindfulness, of investigation, what is going on in our minds? You know, and what is the effect in our minds and in our lives of this? The Buddha spoke very directly to this point. He said that one should make an end to suffering without abandoning the underlying tendencies of desire for pleasant feelings, aversion towards unpleasant ones, and ignorance towards neutral ones, this is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering without abandoning desire for pleasant feelings, aversion towards unpleasant, ignorance towards neutral, this is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering by abandoning these tendencies, that is possible. I think when we hear this, very often we can tend to think of the end of desire as some future goal. Well, I'll practice, 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 and at a certain point, way down the line, something will happen, and I'll be free of desire. You know, I'll get enlightened and desire will be gone. I don't think that's the most helpful way to understand this teaching. Rather than it being a state that we're waiting for, it's something to practice in each moment. We can practice abandoning desire moment to moment when it arises. But the mind is so tricky. You know, the desire is like this little devil in the mind. And just as an example, I was, I was watching, this happens frequently, but this is just one example. I was kind of watching my mind with some little desire for something, you know, a cup of tea or a piece of chocolate. And I had the intention, well, abandon this desire, I don't need it. And so I'd watch the desire come and go, and then it would come and go again, and watch it, come and go again, watch it, come and go again, watch it, come and go again, watch it. And I don't know how many times it came and went, and I watched it. And then in one moment, there was the tea, there was the piece of chocolate. It's like, it was just waiting. You know, that little devil of desire was just waiting for a moment of inattentiveness. So it's tricky, you know, and it's deep. But we keep playing. It's not a question of self-judgment, and it's just, this is our practice. We play with this habit. You know, we practice, okay, we let go, we let go, and then sometimes it gets us, and maybe sometimes it doesn't.
in the moments when we're caught up in the craving, in the desire for some object, when we become identified with this wanting, in those moments we are no longer seeing clearly. We're not, we're not seeing clearly the true nature of the phenomena, you know, in terms of the three characteristics, and we're no longer resting in the natural ease of awareness. So how does this happen, and how can we look at this now in our practice? How can we, how can we really work with this? A very common form of desire in meditation practice is the desire of expectation. A desire for something else to be happening. You know, it's the if-only mind. If only my mind were more calm. If only there were less thoughts. If only the pain in my back would go away. You know, if only, if only, and it's just this mind of expectation. But when we pay attention to the effect of expectation, of this kind of craving, we see that expectation almost always brings agitation and discouragement. It's not a helpful state, and yet we seem to get lost in it and feed it. It really keeps us locked into cycles of hope and fear. You know, it's hope that something will happen. It's fear that it won't happen. And our mind stays very, very agitated because of this. It's a setup for suffering. Expectation also feeds the comparing mind. Have you, have you experienced at all competitive sitting? You know, where you really say, who came in before me? Who's sitting longer than I am? Who sits without moving? Who Just comparing one way or another. There's a difference between being inspired by our, the practice of our fellow yogis, which can be tremendously supportive, and it can be a great inspiration. There's a difference between that and getting caught up in self-judgment if we get into the comparing mind, you know, thinking we're not good enough, or, or pride, you know, look at me, I'm doing really well. In the first course with Saidao Upandita in 84, up at the retreat center, it was very intense, very demanding, and I really was getting caught in this comparing mind and how I was doing, and mostly it was in the negative self-judgment side. That's, that's where my mind was going. And then one day I was walking outside, just, just outside the uh, upper walking room, <coughs> on that little patio out there, and it was the springtime, and it was just when the tulips were coming up. And it was one of those moments where you just see something in nature and it becomes a teaching. And I saw that the flowers, the different flowers, were in very different stages. Some of the tulips were up, and already you know, the, the blossoms were open, the flower was open. Some they were up, but it was still closed. 
Some were just coming out of the ground. Some were just kind of peeking out of the ground. And I realized practice, Dharma practice, is just like this. For everyone, it unfolds in its own time. And if we water it, and we take care of it, and we keep doing it, each flower will bloom. And when I saw that, it was a real moment of relaxation. I I let go of that expecting mind, the craving, the wanting, the comparing, and just settled back, trusting this process. was a great help. So expectation is one kind of craving. Another kind of craving in our practice, and as you can tell, I'm quite an expert in all of these, (laughs) except the various psychological types. This is is where my mind goes. Craving side, desire side. So another form of desire or craving is the desire or craving to hold on to some pleasant experience that we've had. You know, we practice really hard and we get to some really nice place at times, and then the mind wants to keep it, or wants to get it back. I had a very powerful experience of this, which you know, I've mentioned at different times. This goes way back to my time in India when I was studying with Goenkaji. You know, in the early days, and I was doing that practice, sweeping practice, and the whole body opened up you know, to this, it was like a body of light. It was wonderful. Every time I sat down, it was just light, flowing, flowing light. And I thought, this is great. (laughs) I really like this. You know, it was completely effortless and open and wonderful. And then I had to leave India and come back to the States to to work, and, and I was here, and I couldn't wait to get back to my body of light. Well, I went back to India after some months, and this body of light had become a body of twisted steel. You know, I was sitting, and it was just, the energy wasn't moving, and it was stuck. It it felt like, it felt like twisted steel. Not a pleasant feeling. And I spent two years struggling to get back my body of light. Two years. Every sitting, I was kind of pushing my mind and struggling and forcing it. It was the worst two years of my practice. You know, there was so much suffering involved. It took that long for me to realize that it's not about getting anything back. That it's really about opening to what's here now. So I tell you this story so you don't spend two years in such a futile effort. It was so misguided. (laughs) but just the force of that wanting. You know, it was such a pleasant experience that the force of the craving was so strong and created so much suffering. So that's another kind of craving that can come in our practice that we need to look for, to look out for. So it's the craving of expectation, you know, of comparing, craving to hold on or get back to some pleasant experience. It might be craving in the form 
of just craving for the enjoyment of pleasant fantasies, where we're just repeating pleasant fantasies in our minds. It could be fantasies, sexual fantasies, it could be food fantasies. You know, last week it was probably weather fantasies. And I had that, I had that in Burma, you know, on days that were just like last week. I mean, really, really hot and humid and I'd be sitting there and the sweat would be dripping down. And I was having these fantasies of having a Norwegian guru. <laughs> you know, how did I end up in Burma? <laughs> you know, just dreaming of cool weather. And the mind's just getting caught again and again. Even though we know that they're not leading anywhere. These fantasies are not going anyplace. I don't know what I mentioned here, but, but one of my new favorite mantras, kind of noting these recurring repetitive fantasies, is dead end. Just dead end. It's not going anyplace. So instead of spending all of this time lost, in that kind of craving, we remind ourselves and come back. Sometimes we see the depth and intensity of craving in the smallest things, just tiny things. And yet the power of the craving can be so intense. You're doing walking meditation very mindfully, very slowly. Somebody walks by do you ever have that just irresistible urge to look up and see who it is? Or maybe you don't. I do. <laughs> At times. You know, it's just, who was that? And it's just a little thing. And yet the force of it can be so strong in the mind. We want to look at the impact of desire and craving because not only do they hinder concentration you know, and obscure clear seeing of how things are, they also don't deliver on their promise of happiness. And we get involved in all these cravings because they're holding out the promise Fulfill me and you'll be happy. But one of the things we can pay attention to is that they don't deliver on that promise. Why? Because we crave the happiness of different sense pleasures because of pleasant feeling. But as we all know very well these pleasant feelings don't last. They're impermanent, they're coming and going. So then we go after another and another and another and we just stay on this wheel of samsara. There's no end. It's like trying to quench one's thirst through drinking salt water. And what happens is we drink it, we just get more thirsty. And so this is the cycle. This is the cycle of our lives. This force of desire or craving, tanha, from the tiniest thought, who just walked by, to the strongest attachments we have, this force of tanha is the force that keeps samsara rolling. 
So this is not, this is not an insignificant matter in our lives. This is a deeply conditioned pattern. Now it's the root of this perpetual wandering. How many pleasant sense experiences, pleasant feelings have we already had? We've enjoyed endless ones. When Indraji, my first teacher, used to say, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing, of smelling, of tasting? You know, we keep going after them, looking for completion, and we never get to the end. So this doesn't mean that we don't, or we should never enjoy ourselves, or experience the pleasure of different pleasant feelings, because they come, and they are pleasant. It's just to realize the very impermanent, transitory nature of this enjoyment, and how much of our lives, or how much of our practice here, do we want to invest in this endless pursuit. It is an endless pursuit. Dharma practice, as you well know, opens an understanding of possibilities of much greater happiness in our lives. So we want to remember that and see this and work with the craving for sense pleasure so we really come to understand it. That's the first kind of craving. Second type of craving is more subtle. And craving for sense pleasures we're all quite familiar with. Second type of craving is the basic urge or the desire to be. Desire, craving for existence, craving for renewed existence. So this is very basic. I mean, we could almost call it cellular. This desire for continued existence. And of course, we have this desire particularly for continued existence in pleasant realms. Now, the Buddha often talked about this in his progressive Dharma teaching. He would often begin with you know, talking about uh, you know, the benefits of generosity and of sila and rebirth in the deva realms, the heaven realms, just you know, to uplift people's minds. Uh, and there are wonderful descriptions of these higher planes, heavenly planes. Beings there with full-time bodies of light, you know, and heavenly music and pleasure groves, and it said there are even kind of heavenly meditation halls for people who can drag themselves away from other pleasures. Maitreya is supposed to be, you know, in Tusita heaven. That's Maitreya's the Bodhisattva, the next Buddha, just kind of waiting till the proper time. So Manindra would often talk about these heaven realms, and I love being of that personality type. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was totally delighted listening. And many Westerners, of course, really don't believe in this stuff. And Manindra would always say, 
you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. Because obviously the belief in these realms has nothing to do with awakening, with enlightenment. And although as we contemplate you know, these possibilities of higher existence, and it can delight the mind and bring joy to the mind and kind of rapture, the Buddha would always go on in his progressive teachings to remind people that even these realms are part of this wheel of life and death. It's not freedom. A more immediate experience, I think, for most of us of this craving for existence, maybe you're not dwelling much in thinking about the Deva realms, but the way it infects our practice, and I've seen this so clearly at times, is the mind craving or clinging to the unfolding process itself. You know, when we really are back in ourselves, in our meditation, in the process, but we're leaning forward in it, we're toppling forward as if the next breath or the next sensation or the next whatever emotion, the next hit of experience will be what finally brings resolution. It's this very subtle craving to the process itself. Have you had that? Can this clear to you? You know, we're watching, we're, we're with the breath, but not totally just with this breath, but we're with this breath in order to experience the next one. Or we're with this sensation in order to see what it becomes. So it's always that slight leaning forward. This is a craving for existence. It's the process of becoming. Now, at one point in Burma, when I was practicing with Sayadaw, I had been there some months, and my mind had just gotten so, so refined and quiet, and I was just noticing and totally engaged at this kind of careful, careful looking and wanting to see more and more and more and more on this incredibly subtle level. And at one point in an interview, I went in and reported all this, thinking that, you know, this is really great practice. And he, just in his inimitable way, <laughs> said, you're attached to subtlety. You know, and it was exactly right. It was just that craving for subtlety. So that's another kind of craving. It's craving for becoming more and more subtle, more and more refined. But it's still craving. Even as we use all the objects of meditation, whether it's the breath or sensations or sounds or whatever, to develop the concentration, to refine our attention, we need to continually seek to remind ourselves that liberation is not about getting, it's about letting go. 
Ramana Maharshi expressed it very succinctly. He said, try to be less, not more. You know, so that's that's a very different attitude in practice that we usually than we usually have. We're always trying to get more instead of to become less. We can also see this craving for existence to this process of becoming. You know, we might we might see it if we're so inclined in terms of rebirth in the deva realms. We can see it very immediately just in our craving for the next hit of experience in this process of becoming. And in a very mundane and ordinary way, we see this craving for existence in the planning mind. What is the planning mind? It's really imagining ourselves in some future situation. Notice how often in the day our minds are lost in the mind creation of some future self. I will be this, I will do that, I will go there. This is really craving for existence, craving for some future existence. So again, in the Buddha's words, the teachings are so precise and so incisive, and in one way so simple, but it's difficult to remember, it's difficult to do. Buddha said, not reviving the past that itself is a major challenge. Not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with insight, see each arising state. Not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up with desire and craving. So this is our practice. Now we see the tendency of mind to revive the past, to plan for the future. But our practice is seeing with insight each arising state, not craving after past, not setting one's heart on the future, not bound up in desire and craving. So the teaching is very clear in terms of what we need to practice. And when we do practice it, and we begin to experience moments that are free of craving, and we all have many moments when the mind really is free, of wanting, free of desire, free of craving, not in the past, not in the future, we see that the mind free of craving is a great relief. It's a huge relief. 
It's as if we settle back again into openness rather than the contraction of wanting. So it's in this sense that I've you know, used the mantra which I may have mentioned before. You know, it's already here. What we're craving is already here. And the already here is the mind of no craving. That's something we just come back to again and again. So there's craving for sense pleasure. That's the first the Buddha talked of. Craving for existence, this process of becoming. The third kind of desire is craving for non-existence. You know, and traditionally the Buddha called this the annihilationist view. Life is so bad, if only I could not be. There's a poet, he's Central American, maybe from Nicaragua, I'm not sure where, his name is Dario. In one of his poems, Michelle and I call it the Duca poem, there's one of the lines in it, Ode to be a stone with no feeling at all. Do you know, you know those times in practice which feel like that? That's the craving for non-existence. You notice those sittings when this craving becomes strong. There was one time in, in that course with Saito in 84, you know, I was going through a really difficult time. Just, and I would hear these planes go overhead. And I just used to have these fantasies, this is back in, in those days, this fantasy, I hope it's the Russians dropping bombs, then I can stop sitting. <laughs> this, is, this is the craving for non-existence. I didn't really want them to drop bombs, but that was the, that was the feeling. Can I get out of this? Now, what's interesting about this craving for non-existence, which in a way is, is more subtle, we might not be that familiar with it, that it's fed and sustained by the view of self. And this, this, is, this is kind of the liberating point. The idea that there is someone there in the first place to not be reborn. Or the idea that there's even a someone that dies. And that's the fallacy or the delusion of the annihilationist view. That there's someone there in the first place to not be. So the great discovery in practice you know, is that on one level, birth and death, Existence and non-existence, you know, self and other, are really the, the great defining themes of our lives. So on one level, that's true. We're really dealing with these questions of birth and death, existence and non-existence. But on another level, and this is what opens to us 
in our practice is we see that all of this, self and other, birth and death, existence and non-existence, all of that is just a dance of appearances, that nothing is really going on at all. This is the kind of union of relative and ultimate views, which we'll talk about later. So how can we use this time of retreat, you know, and especially this kind of retreat, to understand these very deep and powerful tendencies, patterns of desire and craving? Craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. Obviously, the most important, we need to be mindful when they arise in their different forms. Recognizing the wanting mind, noting it, taking interest in it, not judging it. You know, and you can notice this craving or desire many times a day. This is not a rare event. Notice what takes you away from the simplicity of the moment. Whenever it feels like you're not in that simple, open, easeful awareness of the moment, really look to see what's taking you away from it. And I think you'll find that it's often some kind of craving. Is it desire for some entertainment of some kind? Desire for distraction? The desire for some other experience other than the one you're having now. Are you leaning into your practice? You know, anticipating the next moment. It's really that feeling, even in a subtle way, of being slightly ahead of yourself. And it's very interesting to notice that, whether it's in sitting practice or walking or moving about. Are we totally back, open to what's there, without that reaching, without that wanting, without that desiring, or are we leaning forward into the next moment? We can also investigate or discover wanting and craving retroactively in times of suffering. I mean, suppose we miss it as the cause of suffering and we find ourselves in some kind of suffering. Well, that can become a very good signal. Okay, the suffering, the discomfort, the dis-ease can wake us up. If instead of just wallowing in it, you know, we're judging it or feeling sorry for ourselves, we actually investigate it, we see that when we trace the suffering back, it's most often rooted in some kind of wanting. And that gets very instructive to see. We 
can trace back the suffering to the wanting mind and then feel the wanting, really feel it as an energetic contraction. When I do that, I really I can feel the tightness, I can feel the contraction right in the center of my chest. Just the contraction of craving, the contraction of wanting. It solidifies a sense of self. But then we make, if we're bringing mindfulness to this, we can make a very great leap when we see that the wanting itself is selfless. When we see that, when we have those moments of not identifying with the wanting, then there's a space, a profound space that opens up, and I recommend that you look at this to see that not, and not theoretically. Actually, in moments of suffering, trace back to the wanting, feel the contraction of the wanting, and then to see that the identification with this wanting is a choice. That on a fundamental level, we choose either to identify with it and suffer, or to not identify with it and not suffer that that option is open when we're aware. But this takes some care. In the normal course of our lives, things are happening much too quickly. We don't really trace things back. And so we're simply lost in the pattern of craving and in the subsequent suffering. Just, I'll give you one little example of this, although I've seen this many, many times. But this, this is a very simple example. It goes back to one of the first years I was in Bodh Gaya in India. And I had been traveling with a camera. And a few days, you know, I was in Bodh Gaya, my camera was stolen. And just right there, I was watching my mind, and I saw, I have a choice here. I can either hold on to wanting that camera and suffer, or I can choose not to want and not suffer. That it, there, was, there was a choice there. If I hadn't been aware, I would have just fallen into the old pattern. You know, oh, my camera was stolen, I really wanted my camera, you know, I come all the way to India. But because I was attentive to it, it was amazing. And I saw, I don't have to choose to want. I can just as well choose to not want. So this is in a relatively simple matter. It gets more challenging in greater matters in our lives, but the same principle works. So I just recommend, I suggest, that you look at the craving, the wanting, very carefully. Tracing it back, seeing that the wanting is selfless. Another practice which is very helpful 
in deconditioning this pattern, which goes so deep, is to notice carefully those times when we are caught up in some desire. It might be a fantasy. It might be some wanting you know, that we're experiencing. And to really be mindful of how it feels when we're lost in the craving. And then to watch in that moment when the wanting or craving disappears and how that feels. My experience has always been, when I'm paying careful enough attention, in that moment when the desire or craving disappears, it feels like I've been let out of the grip of something. You know, it just feels like the desire had gripped me, had gripped the mind, and then it goes away. There's such a feeling of relief. But this is just the opposite of conventional understanding. And as I mentioned, the, all the internet is, you know, increase your desire. Desire is good, the pleasure of desire. <laughs> the Buddha, he, in, one of his, in one of his statements, he said, What the world calls happiness, I call suffering. And what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. And what the world calls happiness, desire and craving, and he sees as suffering. And what the world calls suffering, absence of desire, absence of craving, he calls happiness. I go with the Buddha. <laughs> and the choice between the Buddha's wisdom and the world's wisdom, not as a belief, but really as an invitation to see for ourselves. The great gift of this kind of retreat is that there is time to settle in there's time to develop the concentration, the sustained mindfulness, to investigate this very deeply conditioned tendency, sankara, in the mind. As I said, it is the driving force of samsara, of life and death and rebirth. So it's a powerful energy within us. And we can really begin to look at it and see it and understand on many of its different levels the desire for sense pleasures, the craving for existence, for becoming. I will be this, I will be that. The craving in its various forms for non-existence. We can practice from a place of great interest. You know, how is this happening? How is this operating in our lives? Wanting to understand the nature of desire and to explore for ourselves, even for moments, even if we see it clearly for just a few moments, 
the end of craving. Just as the Buddha said in the Song of His Enlightenment, attained is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So we just practice, even for short moments, these glimpses of the freedom the Buddha was talking about. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. mind of no clinging, the mind of no craving. some wonderful lines from T.S. Eliot, The Four Quartets, where he says, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. It really captures that. Condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. In the absence of craving, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.